Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Bani, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Mark Harrison to Raise the Line. Dr. Harrison had had an impressive career as a leader in healthcare, spending more than a decade at the Cleveland Clinic before serving for six years as president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare in Utah, considered one of the nation's most innovative health systems for its focus on wellness and addressing the social determinants of health. Dr. Harrison recently began a new chapter in his career by starting what he describes as a revolutionary healthcare company with venture capital firm General Catalyst that's designed to promote health, wellness, access, affordability, and equity. I also want to note that General Catalyst is a major backer of CityBlock Health, whose CEO, Dr. Toya Najayi, was a previous guest on the show. So, Mark, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. It's great to see you, Shiv, and great to be with you. Great. Now, our audience doesn't know, but I've obviously been following your career for a while now because I lived in Park City for a few years. And we ran into each other randomly at the club we share, Silver Mountain Health Club, where I think you were doing a, a 5 a.m. swim. Before I get into kind of your esteemed career in healthcare, I did want to just say that I admire your focus on your own personal health and well-being and wanted to ask you a bit about what you're training for now because you completed multiple Ironman. So yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And just so our listeners are clear, our health club's not super fancy. So it sound it sounded very it sounded <laughs> very upper crust there for a second. It's it's functional, wouldn't you say, Shiv? It it gets the job done. I, I've loved sport my whole life. And I think I probably started training regularly when I was 12 or 13 years old. I'm pretty convinced it is a non-pharmacologic treatment for my bad ADHD. So I think it probably takes the edge off and helps me focus. It also has just been a pleasure. My best friends are the folks who I've met through sport. So I'm training always for something. I think my next race is in a couple of weeks. I'm mostly doing local races this summer. And last year was a big year doing, doing Kona in the fall. But this year, I think it's mostly about getting some running speed back and just enjoying the local scene. I really enjoy it. And probably the best part is getting to train with lots of friends around home right now. And maybe we can go for a ride or a run together. It'd be really fun. I was just up in Boise last weekend uh, with one of my oldest friends. And we went for, I think we both needed like a couple of days off after, after the weekend. We, we swam, we ran, we mountain biked, we lifted weights, we drank some beer, we talked, we caught up. It was just fabulous. So sport is simply a vehicle to take good care of your body, but also take good care of your soul, I think. I couldn't agree more. And I think there are a lot of very successful people like yourself who who pursue these. I think one, because it takes a lot of drive to do both. But two, it's the, as you said, non-pharmacological therapy for all sorts of all sorts of, <laughs> for all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> and and some of the best ideas I find come from those long, long runs and long rides. Yeah. I would agree. And it keeps me married. It'll be 33 years next week. And my wife will often say, you need to go for a run. So why don't you get out there? <laughs> so, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Not a milestone. So switching gears from your achievements in sport and reasons for sport, you know, let's hear more about kind of what got you interested in medicine and then pediatric critical care specifically. So I've always loved medicine. I came from a medical family. My granddad was a surgeon. My dad was a surgeon. My mom was a a social worker. And I guess sort of helping professions were always what we did. So in medical school, well, in college, I was a, I was a river guide for a lot of it. I was a safety boater for a rafting company. And after 
a summer sleeping in my truck with wet neoprene. It's like, I probably should go back to, should probably go back to school and study really hard and decided to go to medical school. And then in medical school, I actually raced as a not very good pro triathlete for a season or two. I did a bunch of sort of obscure offshoots of the sport, like canoe triathlon. And I did off-road racing and stuff. And again, I was like marginally successful. It's like, maybe this is a better hobby than, than a profession. And I think the thing I liked the most about it was really two things. I loved the puzzle. So I like the intellectual part of it. It's like seeing a person and listening to them and trying to figure out what was going on. And aligned with that, the second thing is I love people's stories. I'm a really avid reader. I'm an avid listener. I love people's lived experience and the privilege of like being led into somebody's life in the most intimate, sometimes happiest, sometimes saddest times is just, you know, just incredible. And I got a lot of pleasure out of it and I hopefully helped a lot of people. So I think that was the, the, the medicine part and pediatric critical care. I wanted to be a pediatrician, mostly because I like the other pediatricians. I like kids just fine, but I, the, the, the family dynamics were super interesting. And I've always had sort of a, I'm not sure, maybe like a mission driven side. And I, and I've always been interested in the underdog and kids are, have always been systematically at risk and underserved. And I initially wanted to go into pediatrics and to sort of fight that fight for the kids. And I thought that when I met my wife, she was a she was an intern. I was a fourth year medical student that we would end up in a little town in Montana being the you know being the town pediatricians and working with the local school district and it sounded kind of romantic and service oriented and hum- humble and simple and my problem was I a wasn't very good at general pediatrics, <laughs> and B I didn't like it very much. So I'm not I'm not like a big sleep toilet training and, and biting expert, and nor did I really want to be. And and my wife is really a phenomenal general pediatrician, like she's really good. And so I I was like going to leave pediatrics altogether, and first went to the emergency department for rotation. I loved it, and then I realized the person who saved the bacon of the people in the emergency department was the intensivist. And I've always been the, the person I want to run towards trouble. I don't want to run away from trouble. And so it was magic for me. I love the ICU. I love the teamwork. I love the in, intensity and clarity of decision-making. I love the physiology and pharmacology. Love the people. It was a great, great, great experience. Yeah, no, clearly. And one reason I love to ask that question is personally, because I'm back in med school now after 10 years of taking a break to, to start and build and, and sell osmosis, but also because so many of our listeners ask us, you know, what are some zigzaggy career paths? And it gives it gives them like a, a sense of all the things you can do if you are fortunate enough to to have a long enough lifespan to then yeah. pursue all those interests. So, so Shiv, do you have a sense for where you're going with your medical school career? Thanks for asking that. And clearly, that's what you were mentioning. One reason you were attracted to medicine is asking people about their lived experience. So I I love the brain and neuroscience. And that's what got me into osmosis and learning science. How do people learn and retain? And how do we change people's behaviors? And one of the main reasons I've gone back to Hopkins, because I was thinking of transferring for a while 
to NYU or some other place to go back to med school is they have some of the leading research, both in brain computer interface and AI, as well as psychedelics, because I think there's a lot of promise in both of those for the next, you know, 10, 20 years or so, at least. Uh, the psychedelic thing is really interesting. About three and a half years ago, when I was super sick with myeloma and I had worked my way through all of the conventional chemo and immunotherapies and then a bone marrow transplant that failed. And while I was trying to get into a clinical trial because I was out of options and getting sicker by the day, my biggest fear as I was facing my mortality was the sense that I wasn't done yet. I had more to do and I felt very incomplete. I was nervous about my kids who were young adults at the time. And of course, my, my wife, who I didn't want to leave prematurely, although she probably would have been, I was worth more dead than alive at that point. So <laughs> she, she would have been okay. <laughs> I so. But I started reading about psychedelics and this idea of terminally ill people, which I was at the time, they're getting a better sense of how they fit into the world was fascinating to me. And since then, you know, as we both know, that field has really just taken off. And I think probably is largely untapped in terms of its both therapeutic as well as palliative uses. So I'm really, I'm really, I think you're onto something big there. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Thanks for sharing that personal story about what got you interested in the space as well. Roland Griffiths is the professor at Johns Hopkins, who unfortunately now does have terminal cancer, but some of his seminal work was in patients with cancer and helping them reduce death anxiety. And his collaborator, Manish Agarwal, who we've had on the podcast at Sunstone Therapies, they're doing the first clinical trial of having patients with terminal illnesses and their caregivers, both experiencing psilocybin journeys to see if that can help reduce the anxiety of both parties involved. So I'm glad to hear. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do they do their do they do their journey together? Uh, I don't actually know the, the format, but I think I'll, I'll be seeing Manish at the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver next week. I think that's how it's structured. So I'll ask him a bit more about that. That's fascinating because it is, you know, one person isn't terminally ill. The family actually is affected so profoundly in, in every possible way. So that's really fascinating. That sounds like it's very promising. Totally. And, and I'm sorry that your mentor is not doing well. Um, yeah, no. You know, we, all, we all die eventually, but, you know, it's, it's unfortunate when somebody who's given so much, I bet he has a lot more to give. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure, as, as you know, as a leader and having cultivated many mentees, kind of the life work continues through, through them, which is great. So let's talk about your journey as a leader, because, you know, it's no small feat what you accomplished at Intermountain. Maybe you can give us a sense of, you know, when you joined Intermountain, what it was like, and then you led it through the COVID pandemic, maybe some of your highlights respecting your time. I know this is a short interview. Well, that's quite all right. So look, Intermountain was terrific when I got there and it's been a, it's long been a mission driven, high integrity organization led and governed by amazing people. And, and it also was pretty conventional when I got there in some ways, forward thinking in terms of paying attention to quality, forward thinking in terms of being excited about the payer provider model and keep being paid to keep people well forward thinking and having a really great medical group and also having its own health plan. But it also was pretty slow to move. And one could argue that there are really good parts about that. And I, and I would accept that. But we also were a bit inwardly focused. And I think one of the great examples of that is when we looked hard at the quality data for the system, 
Quality was in the top of everyone's mind, as was safety. But we were only measuring ourselves against ourselves to a large extent, and we were inwardly looking. And I changed that really quite dramatically. And also, with the help of others, instituted an operating model that relied on communication from the front lines up on a daily basis with a tiered huddle system that ended up being sort of the backbone of how we made change. And, you know, on a daily basis, a couple thousand huddles would occur culminating in a visit with the leadership team at 10 o'clock every morning. And we got to hear every day how the system was functioning, where it wasn't functioning and make decisions as quickly as possible to try and improve that. And actually the person who really was the architect and executor of that is a gentleman named Rob Allen, who is my chief operating officer, who is now the CEO of Intermountain. And I think the other things that we did were good. We kept on driving value and we got up to about 40% of the total revenue of the system was in a fully, you know, fully prepaid model, capitated model. And that allowed us to make lots of really interesting decisions about keeping people well instead of just taking care of them when they were sick and driving low-cost care. And then finally, we grew. And one of the very conventional things that as much as I immensely respect the folks who came before me at Intermountain, there was an expectation that we would, quote, never grow until our care model was perfected, unquote. And I just said, that's ridiculous because no one's ever perfect. And that's an excuse not to grow. And if we are doing things really well, we actually have an obligation to share that more broadly and to lead the industry. Uh, to that end, we grew from really one state with a bit of activity in another state into a seven-state system in a six-year period and grew from a $5 billion company to a almost $15 billion company, all while performing very, very well. I'd say the highlight of my time at Intermountain, in addition to working with really remarkable people, was the opportunity to be a wartime CEO. And in this case, the war was the pandemic. And the chance to work with former competitors who became our collaborators, to see the innovation and leadership that came from the front lines, to speed up processes, to take better care of patients, to fully embrace the digital world and alternative sites of care was thrilling at the same time as the impact on human beings, both from physical illness, from behavioral health problems, from isolation was horrendous to see. And the opportunity to try and do a good job in the, in the face of all that. And I think arguably Intermountain did a spectacular job. What a privilege. And I'll never forget that opportunity. As it happens, and that's also, I was on the back end of my CAR-T therapy and I needed to be isolated because I was profoundly immunosuppressed at that time and very much at risk for COVID in the pre-vaccination era in particular. Era in particular. So leading remotely from a timing standpoint worked out great. That's incredible. I mean, if anybody was to tune into this and just hear that six-year growth in terms of people you've covered, one state to seven states and the 3x in, in revenue, they'd be impressed just by that. But to know that you personally were going through the myeloma and we, you know, half to a third of that tenure was during COVID is, is even more impressive. I like the wartime CEO reference. I'm sure you've read the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where that's referenced as well. Yeah. Look, I, at General Catalyst, I have an opportunity to work with Ken Chenault, who's the chairman. And I think his his actions at a number of points during his career 
at American Express, he was sort of the ultimate in that. And if I did a quarter of as good a job as Ken did at American Express, if I did that at Intermountain, I would I would count that as a success. Yeah, no, incredible. So yeah, let's talk about General Catalyst because you know we were all wondering what what was next as you as you wind wound up your time at Intermountain. Can you t tell us what you're? I know you're, you're in stealth right now, but what what can you tell us about that decision to join GC and what you're working on now? And I, I I'm sure it's clear. Ultimate respect for Intermountain. It is an organization that is at scale. I mean, now there's sixty thousand employees now. There's thirty three hospitals. There's hundreds and hundreds of care sites. It's a big operation, and and I think it is changing as fast as an operation of its size can change. That said, it's not fast enough to hold the leadership role that we need someone to take in terms of demonstrating what the future of healthcare should look like. And I think it should be accessible. It should be affordable. It should be of high quality, it should be consumer centric, and it should be a combination of the, the digital and legacy world. And it's a clicks and mortar future, as, as we like to say. And I see health systems being systematically disintermediated by certain payers, as well as by some tech companies who are eager to take the easy stuff and the high margin relatively low cost stuff and leave the health systems with really complex, sick, and often very poor patients. And they're not going to go, they're not going to dry up and blow away, but they're, they're distressed. As you know, half of them are running in the red right now. And I want to change that. And I needed a speedboat to change that. And Ken, who I mentioned, Ken Chenault, chairman of GC and Hemant Tanasia, the CEO, two incredibly high integrity and brilliant people came to me and they said, look, GC's on a journey to change healthcare through this health assurance initiative. And that really translates into population health. And it's powered by collaboration, radical collaboration that I've called partnerships in my career previously. And they said, come and join us. Let's do something amazing. And for quite a long time, I was resistant initially because I was so happy at Intermountain, but it became apparent to me that there may be a platform at GC to make the kind of change that I believe needed to be made and, and do it at scale and quickly. And that's what we will do. And I can't really say a ton more, but all those features, access, affordability, equity, clicks and mortar, health system resiliency, et cetera, will all be facets of it. And one of the things that is public that will be part of our enterprise is this health system, this health ecosystem that we've created with now 17 partnerships across three continents and four countries that are, we've got these health systems to be our innovation thought partners and collaborators as we deploy digital tools. We're very fortunate, privileged to work with these folks. They're well-led and they see the future needs to be different. And we'll be eager to work with them going forward with HATCO as it's unveiled. Well, we're, we're eager to hear more about what it is. I know it's um, going to be a great adventure. Thanks. Yeah, it's exciting to, to just the description. It will be, do you think later this year we'll, we'll hear more about it? Hoping. Yes, that's, that's the intention. And 
I can't really say a lot more of it. There are a number of things in flight right now that if we can land them, then we'll be out of stealth mode. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for that. One, one thing then we can talk about, I'm sure, is, is your latest, your recent book, Possibility Unleashed. I did want to make sure, given that you're an avid reader and, and I am as well, it's on my list. Can you tell us a bit about the book and about some of the lessons and advice you've put in the book that could be relevant to our audience? Yeah, I think there are really two theses to the book. And the first really relates to this contentious world that we live in. And having public leadership roles in a time when, you know, a lot of folks' business models are built upon polarizing the population is actually pretty difficult. And what I've tried to do, and I think done reasonably successful, is find common ground and to depoliticize the language that's used and also to identify systematically identify commonalities that allow people to work together who are unlikely bedfellows based on maybe what their politics are or how they make their living, et cetera. And so that's the first main point. And the, and the second is that as leaders, our job is to provide a place, a venue for people to express their, their talents as fully as possible. And the title of the book is Possibility Unleashed, and that's in fact what I try and think about every day is like, how can I create an environment where people get to do their very best work and within the guardrails of strategy and, and clear milestones, how do they get to run hard, run fast, be collaborative and do more in that context than they could ever do on their own? And I think there's some pretty good examples in the book and I'm incredibly fortunate there's a number of folks in there who have were kind enough to be interviewed and ranging from people like you know, David Petraeus, who was kind enough to do an endorsement for the book, Stan McChrystal, General McChrystal wrote Team of Teams, Jimmy Romady, who ran IBM, and, and, and on and on. You know, one of my one of my favorite people, Bob Carey, you know, who was a a governor, a US senator. Uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winner. He talked about some of his leadership experiences and point of view. So I think it's a good read that you get to sort of get inside the heads of these people who have given their life to service and making change and leading others. And so far, so good. I think most people are enjoying it. Well, I'm excited to read it and uh, we'll get back to you once I do with any, any takeaways I have. Please. And leave me a good review online. Of course, of course, <laughs> always do that. <laughs> and we'll we'll drop the show, we'll drop the link to in our in our show notes for our audience. Please, of course, yeah. You mentioned at the beginning that you're an avid reader. So one thing I always like to ask our guests too is, what are some of the influential books you've read? Oh my gosh, that's hard. So I'm a I'm a somewhat indiscriminate reader. So I like everything from really I like nonfiction. I like I like fiction. I like older books. I like newer books. You know, I, I loved the book Endurance about the Shackleton expedition. That's like an old favorite of mine that I've reread a number of times. And the thing I loved about that was like incredibly, and he was a complicated and not necessarily like a great guy, but what an incredibly difficult situation he had with his, his, his boat and his team trapped in the Antarctic ice and having to winter over down there. And then the escape they made across like, the Southern Sea and open boats and and everyone got out alive and essentially intact. An incredible feat of leadership that I just loved. There's a British author who you may or may not know. His name is Ian McEwen and his use of language is like 
absolutely spectacular. And there's a book that he wrote about a decade ago. It's called Machines Like Us that ends up being pretty prescient in terms of what AI and machine learning and the impact of robotics could look like in a very fictionalized setting. And I I love that book as well and read it relatively recently. Those are great recs. I I, I will definitely plus one the endurance rec. When I read that a couple of years ago, one thing that stuck with me was that that scene where someone was out trying to find, you know, get food for his his team or for the for the ship. And I think an elephant seal broke through the ice and chased him. And whenever I go through hard things, I'm like, wow, at least an elephant seal is not chasing or a, a walrus <laughs> or something is not chasing me right now. <laughs> it was a leopard seal. And he actually had his guys would take turns running along the edge, you know, serving as bait for, for, for the leopard seal. And then they're trying, I mean, that's, that's teamwork. But anything by Ian McEwen, I think you would love and there's a really great book. Gosh, and I'm forgetting the author's name. He's the person who wrote The Martian. And it's called Project Hail Mary. That, yep. And I don't normally love science fiction. It is a terrific read. Fascinating read. I agree. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. So my, my final question for you is, is just two parts. One is, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm back in med school. What advice would you give to me and other med students about approaching their careers, especially given all the things that are changing, not just from the pandemic, but now AI, as you mentioned? So I'm a total optimist about medicine, to tell you the truth. So this is a career, this is a profession that if you go back 100 years, antibiotics didn't exist, right? So in the pre-world, you know, antibiotics really started to hit during World War II. And the idea that radical changes happening is actually heartening to me because in general, although we've had plenty of medical misadventures, things have gotten a lot better and they've gotten better for lots of people across the globe in, in, a, in, in any number of ways. And I would say to people who are going to medicine, like it's the best career of all time, and there's nothing more sacred than taking care of another human being. And I'd say Learn to be a lifelong learner because things are going to change fast. Plan on retooling and retraining a couple of times because that's going to be what the world, regardless of whether you're in medicine or in other things, that we're all going to need to learn how to do. And most of all, have fun with it. I mean, it's just incredibly interesting, fulfilling, satisfying, endlessly fascinating. I'd say go for it. And by, by the way, one of the things I love about this generation of doctors and our oldest, he's 30. Alex is finishing his OBGYN residency at a safety net hospital in Cleveland. And then he'll do a maternal fetal medicine fellowship. Alex and his colleagues are much better than my colleagues and I or Mary Carol ever were. They're going into this for all the right reasons. They know they're not going to get probably be rich or famous, but they're going to be fulfilled. They're going to earn a decent living and they're that they're going into this eyes wide open. And so my advice would be go for it and love it. That's wonderful advice to end on. So Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the RaiseLine podcast. And more importantly, for the decades that you've contributed, both individually for patient care, as well as leading large health systems. And now what you're doing with GC, which we're excited to hear about. Thanks, my friend. And I hope to see you in Park City. And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care.
If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.